You're listening to the Australian Hunting and Beyond podcast with Matt. Where we talk about hunting, shooting, fishing, camping, and everything else that the great outdoors has to offer. Let's get into it. Okay, we've got a super important one tonight. You've probably seen the footage that's gone a bit viral. It was on ABC in regards to the helicopter culling of deer down in South Australia where there were some pretty close hunters to what was going on. And, man, that was – I wouldn't want to be personally in that position. So tonight we're joined by Jake Nicholson who was on ABC talking about what had happened on that footage and if you haven't seen it, we'll try and put some links up on to be able to access it so you can look in the show notes. And, geez, there's so much to talk about tonight and what's happening in South Australia. Jake, welcome to the podcast, mate. Yeah, Matt. Hey, it's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for reaching out. Uh, looking forward to having a chat, mate. As you said, plenty to talk about. Mate, we started talking back in, I think, oh, April and then July this all came about because I've been yeah. a fan of what you do and – and the videos you put up on Instagram for a while. And then this just started bubbling over. And mm. yeah. I, uh, I've i had grave concerns for how deer are being treated for a while now. And that started with the National Feral Deer Action Plan. And yep. that's now being published and pushed around by, in my opinion, it is the Invasive Species Council. Seem to be the big, a big driver behind it, most certainly. They are. And it's yeah. interesting because we'll talk about some other places they've got some fingers in the pie as well after yeah. we talk about tonight. But, mate, what is going on down there in South Australia? What's this – I guess they're using shotguns. That seems yep. to be the big one. And there is also a bit of a – look, I don't know. There's a bit of a rumour that you can't opt out as a landholder for aerial culling as well. Is there any truth to that? Yeah, so you probably you got to wind the clock back a little bit to sort of figure out the nuts and bolts behind the whole movement, what's happening in South Australia now. So back in 2019, there was a change in legis- uh, legislation on deer themselves, and it's gone from being basically controlled to eradicate. So big change for um, the whole outcome of deer in the long term. So what we're... There was very little pressure um, on landowners initially. Obviously, there's been a ramp up in government funding and the use of the helicopter to yeah, try and exterminate the deer from the landscape. But now that you know, this has been in, in action for a little while, they're getting more and more uh, forceful, which they can do by law because it's, you know, it's a legislation to try and eradicate the deer. So... Farmers that may have, you know, been controlling deer on their own properties and were happy to have a sustainable amount of deer on their property are getting forced away from that sort of ideal that they had. So now, currently, if you've got any deer on your property, you are seen to be not, you know, meeting the requirements by the law to have eradicated deer from your property. And They've been doing thermal surveys, flying over your property. They see any deer on your property. Basically, legally, they can put an action order onto you, which 
is, you know, a way of them giving themselves basically legal permission to go in and do a job that you can't. Um, even if you've got facts and figures and data of how many deer you shoot a year, uh, bits and pieces, that's just all being pushed aside because simply you can't do the job. So it's, yeah, it's pretty it's pretty worrying. Um, I've heard stories of them doing flyovers on properties where there may be no deer at one stage because of that we're talking about wild deer populations. They're not, you know, stuck on a property as such. They move around. They might frequent your property, but they're not all the, there all the time. You can, they'll uh, do a survey and you'll get told that, you know, you've got no deer on your property and you're meeting your legal requirements. Beauty. But then the next time they'll do a flyover, you might have half a dozen deer on your place. Well, then if they want to, they can issue you with an action order and then make you try and remove, they can come and remove those deer with a helicopter or other methods. So, yeah, it's getting pretty full on and it's like sort of farmers or landowners are starting to lose the, the right to do things on their own property. They're a step above or over and above, basically. That is scary on a just a multitude of reasons. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's sort of hard to break down. I've sort of probably spewed it all out there, but... In, and that's to the best of my knowledge. I can't say that all of that is 100% correct, but from how I take it, in my opinion, that's sort of, and from ex, some experiences, that's how it's coming across. And it's, yeah, it's really concerning. The monetary value of the deer and the hunting to some farmers can be worth hundreds, tens, hundreds of thousands of dollars to some landowners with like big property owners and that's that's just being ignored as well. So, yeah, the positives of having deer on your property are, are no longer important to the government. You took the words out of my mouth then because I was going to talk about the financial incentives for owners to have deer on there. Yeah, and definitely. Especially with the fluctuation of meat prices and things like that. We know farmers do it tough financially. And this is an opportunity for them to make some passive income or, you know, have another revenue stream, Most which, certainly. you know, is, is diversification and any smart businessman knows that's key to having your portfolio. Yeah. So for me, that's such a concern that they're having that right taken away for them and also to manage their own land like that. It just yeah. seems crazy that the government can sort of walk in here and say, hey, unlucky, uh, we deem this to be the action that needs to be taken, you have no choice. And yep. as you said, deer move. Just because they're on that property for that one flyover doesn't mean that they're going to stay on that property. Yeah. But there's so many elements to this that just seem so dodgy, to be honest. It's, it really is bizarre. And a lot of those key factors that we recognise as hunters, like you're saying about the deer populations moving around depending on feed availability and bits and pieces, that's just irrelevant to them, which is, yeah, it's madness. If there was, yeah, some sort of flexibility on, you know, trying to achieve, I can understand where there might be areas where they can achieve eradication. I don't think it's ever going to happen uh, nationally. It's probably not going to happen statewide because the proof's in the pudding. It's never happened on mainland Australia before with any species. But you might be able to control certain areas, which they've proven they can do with certain animals. But if there were some sort of conversations and management plans or control plans put together with farmers when they had a say on their own land, it just would make so much more sense. No, look, I agree with everything you just said there. Let's talk about that footage because it has gone yep. 
viral and, and I'm glad it has because I mentioned it earlier saying I wouldn't want to be in that position when you're on a property yeah. hunting and there's a helicopter and they're just shooting away with shotguns and they're not probably – I mean, as a hunter, you're decked out in camouflage. While you're in camo, it's not a state forest like over here in New South Wales where you're wearing blaze orange. It's not a requirement in South Australia. That's right. Uh, that would be very concerning that they can see you from the helicopter so yeah. there's a chance of you actually getting hit. Now, thankfully, I'm taking it no one got hit with anything. But no, no, no. Still damn dangerous. Oh, exactly. So, yeah, it's been – it's been an interesting one. I'll try and sort of go back from the start and just explain how I got a hold of the material because it wasn't myself. It was another couple of local hunters and, you know, why we've done what we've done with the material and then, you know, where to from here and just a few things about what's happened over the last week. So a little while ago when I started this sort of fight for deer and hunters in South Australia thing, that it is just something off a personal bat. It's not affiliated with any association or anything. It's just me trying to gain some traction for, for hunters and our thoughts. I put a search out there for anyone that had been affected by the helicopter program, whether it be good, bad or indifferent. And, yeah, it was interesting, the material I received, plenty of stories, um, some that, you know, might have been a bit far-fetched, some that were, were really worrying. But the pictures of poorly shot deer or wounded deer on cameras, which was, you know, shortly after um, the helicopter had been over on trial cams and that sort of thing. I received quite of them, which was quite worrying. But when I got this video from Rob, so Rob has used his name on the ABC today, so I'm happy to use reference to Rob the hunter that took the um, the video. It was really concerning, and like you've seen the footage, it's, it's sort of chilling. And, I, you know, my main concern was, obviously the safety issue that goes along with it, not just for hunters but the general public. And how I said to Rob, how was it dealt with afterwards? And it was reported to obviously the, the correct government departments and also the police, and it was sort of swept under the rug. Initially, you know, there's been so many contradictions between we saw you, we didn't, we landed the helicopter in, uh, straight away and they didn't, and it's all just been a, a wishwash of untruths throughout the whole process and the two hunters involved are just felt really hard done by and mistreated and I thought well this really needs to be exposed the people responsible need to be responsible for their actions and I thought the best way to to make this happen is you know make it judged by the public and if if they see it as a concern it will go viral and you know the flow and effect will hopefully try to achieve some sort of justice and yeah, thankfully, you know, within 24 hours it was grabbed by some mainstream media outlets and has been pushed out there really well. So last time I looked on the ABC News Instagram page, we're up over 300,000 views on there, which is substantial. It's been played on Seven Sunrise and other media outlets, Triple M and bits and pieces on the radio. So, yeah, it's been good. It's I've had a couple of phone calls from um, politicians and they're talking about raising it in question time in Parliament this week, actually firing some questions at the Minister um, who's, you know, the top dog in this situation who's responsible um, for this sort of stuff and engages the different um, departments or areas to make things happen with certain funding. So it'll be interesting to see how they respond to the questions and what it might turn into um, Rob's 
in the process of reporting this to the ATSB too, which is a the Australian Transport and Safety Bureau. So it's a a federal based body that investigate safety issues, and they've got a cert a special branch that is sort of aviation is how I take it. So for it to be thoroughly investigated by I'm sort of seeing that as a third party, not an internal investigation, should really highlight, you know, what's happened on the floors and how to move forward and hopefully try and make this whole thing a lot more safer and an incident like that never happen again, basically. So I've seen the ABC footage as we spoke about earlier and the comment at the end from the journalist reporting on it was that they're going to do an investigation into it. So I'm really curious as to if we'll ever hear what that investigation results in. Yeah. Um, because it is an internal one and yeah. it wouldn't shock me that, you know, that, oh, it's, it, it all gets swept under the rug because no, that's right. That's just the way things happen. And being an internal investigation, uh, I'm self-employed. I have an accident, you know, in my workshop and I investigate it. Is that going to be treated differently if SafeWork did it? Well, you know, of course you're not going to want to shut yourself down over an accident. I'm not saying I would ever do that, but, you know, to have an internal investigation, I don't think that's good enough. Tim Blackwell, a good mate of mine, uh, made the comparison, it's the the fox investigating the chook house. Well, you know, I sort of, I agree with that. So that that is one of the questions that we want to put to the minister is, can we see internally what's happened with this investigation? I've approached my local member and want the same sort of questions asked. I've also got a plan to put in a freedom of information to try and obtain the footage from the shoot on that day. So uh, Brad Page, in his response um, on the country hour to my interview, mentioned that you know they've got extremely high-tech gear on the helicopter and they've got three cameras recording at different angles at all times. Well, let's have a look at that footage. And let's have a listen to the vo- you know the the vocals on that day, and line it up with the flight paths and bits and pieces, and really look into this. And I think that will very clearly show exactly what's happened, and you know what process needs to be taken from there. So just for our listeners, Brad Page is actually he's employed by the Department of Primary Industries and Regions in South Australia, otherwise known as PERSA. I might say that wrong, but. That's what it stands for. Yeah. Um, okay. So, look, one of the things we started talking about was the fact I I love that you were starting to advocate because that's what I am doing my best to do, especially with this podcast, is to yep. raise awareness and and talk to people about things like the National Feral Deer Action Plan and yeah. and what's going on in the different states. And we've just covered the what's going on down there in in Victoria with duck hunting and and all these things. And I think that's important that we're getting the message out as best we can. Definitely. And yeah. One thing I'd like to touch on what you just said was talking about getting in touch with your local member. So if you're in South Australia and you're listening to the podcast or you know a hunter in South Australia, please contact them and get them to do something about this because this is a big event and I think we need to maximise the exposure this gets and have the right people contacted to get questions and answers for what has happened because there's – too many times I think we let things get swept under the rug or don't make enough noise. And that happened with duck hunting. The inquiry down in Victoria, we had 20% of licensed duck and quail hunters actually make a submission. 
yeah. you know, that's that's pretty poor when we think about it. Like, yes, 5,000 yeah. sounds like a big number, but when you actually put in how many licenses are there, 20% is very ordinary. So if you know someone in SA, shout out to them and tell them, hey, do you know about this? Um, this is something we need to look at. So, mate, on the advocacy side, yep, you've stepped up and you're a pretty quiet bloke. I think when we, we spoke to start with, you, you yeah. didn't really – you're not looking to become famous or anything like that. No, you're no, just no. basically you had a gutful. Yeah, and that's sort of what it got back to when I got involved with my local ADA branch down here, the Australian Deer Association branch. I when I sort of first got into stalking, um, I had yeah no intentions to be doing what I'm doing now, but I ended up being involved with the branch committee and then ended up being branch president for a number of years and it sort of started a fire within me with just this passion for hunting and providing for my family and for deer in general. And yeah, I just I, I got this feeling I know I know that association in particular and there's others out there and other bodies that definitely do a huge amount of advocacy work for hunters. But it's a lot of stuff at a higher level that we don't necessarily see or feel sometimes. You know, they're rubbing shoulders with um, stuff at federal parliament, which definitely has a big flow and effect. But I just felt as if there was a hole in the local operational stuff and in South Australia with less hunters over here and less ADA branches and that sort of stuff. I felt as if, you know, maybe there was a need for more of a push from hunters and through you know, that experience within the ADA, I sort of started to gain a bit more confidence in speaking and dealing with people in government departments and whatnot. And I just got to the point where I thought, look, I've got nothing to lose. If I make a few mistakes or whatever along the way, well, so be it. But at the end of the day, I can sit down and think, look, I'm giving this my absolute best shot, um, not just for myself personally, but everyone else with a similar interest that wants this to be a part of their life. Um, for a long time and for generations to come. So, yeah, it's it sort of made, made me you know, a little bit more exposed and in the public eye and I've been a pretty busy boy the last sort of six months with it all. But, yeah, it, it is rewarding. But I've just been overwhelmed with the support from um, the hunters, not just in South Australia but Australia-wide. There's a lot of people that, you know, just shoot your messages and bits and pieces that help keep you driven and keep you going. So shout out to all of them at the same time. All right, so firstly, I want to echo their sentiments and commend you on stepping up and doing it. We need more good people stepping up and it is quite confronting and I will say you spoke extremely well on the ABC and portrayed yeah, hunters yeah. in a good light, which is really important because I do feel there's been a lot of videos and things like that out there or interviews that I've seen where they tend to pick out people who are not so articulate in a way to portray hunters maybe in a bad light. Most so yeah. that is something I think we all need to be mindful of and I thought you did a fantastic job no, of expressing you. yourself. So well yeah. done there. Cheers. I think it's a good segue into the shotgun side of it and where that has come from because Danny Ryan, Chair of Field and Game Australia, we had him on the podcast recently and he raised a couple of things about using shotguns and how it is seen, it is deemed to be super effective and it reduces a few different things. And this is, I sort of went, hmm, I want to find out more about this. Yeah. So I did jump on to Persa and go through their website and the document that they've 
base the research on about using shotguns is there for anyone to access. And I will put a link up in the show notes for people mm. to jump on and have a look. So be worthwhile. we're going to have a bit of a chat about that and unpack that document because that seems to be the, the gospel that they're using to justify the aerial culling with shotguns. And after reading it, it does bring a couple of things up in my mind going, hmm, I don't know if that is accurate or I don't know if this has been done. I really feel there's a predetermined outcome from the actual document. So the document's called The Aerial Culling Feral Fallow Deer with Shotguns Improves Efficiency and Welfare Outcomes. It was done by a group of people but mainly from Flinders University, the Landscape South Australia Limestone Coast Group and obviously South Australian Government Persa. Mm. So straight away before I opened this document, I had something jump out at me and said, what What are they doing on there? And that is uh, a gentleman by the name of Ted Rowley and he was at the time of this document the chair of the National Feral Deer Action Plan Working Group. And if you listen to this podcast or my last podcast, uh, you'll know what I think about the National Feral Deer Action Plan. And it's very interesting that they would even be a part of this document and a part of this group that has looked into the research to provide this as the gospel for for Persa to use. That just alarmed me straight away. Yeah, you look at the list of the names at the top of the page and you just think, well, righto, so you've got Everyone, half the people on there are being paid by the government to make this stuff happen. So they're going to want to justify their jobs as best as possible. I always say that this is there's predetermined bias already mm. before I've even started looking at the document and seeing the groups that are working on this. Yeah. You sort of know which way it's headed before oh. anything's even happened. Yeah. Yeah, you read the title, you look at the names, you know where this is going. A hundred percent. Really, I couldn't agree more. Yeah. So we're going to break down it bits and pieces and we're not going to go through the whole document because that would take forever. But realistically, they predicted before, and that's not uncommon that before a program was done and the research was done that there's a prediction of what happened. I'm not a big fan of when things are predicted only because that can lead to bias, as I just mentioned. And what they were saying is the main sort of things they were looking for or predicted was that it would increase the efficiency of the program. It would improve welfare outcomes for target animals by the following. One, reducing the time between the first shot and death. Two, shortening pursuit times. And three, increasing the likelihood of multiple projectiles penetrating the thorax of target animals, leading to more fatal injuries of vital organs thereby minimising time until death. Now, the way this was conducted was with uh, two shooters in a helicopter, a thermographer as well, and they were using a Benelli M2 semi-automatic shotgun with a red dot. And the second shooter, the backup shooter, was using a Wedgetail WT25 semi-automatic chambered in 308. That had a thermal scope on it. So... This is where then the numbers start to jump out at me, Jake, yep. is there were 611 deer culled. Out of that, they only chose 104 to review the video and audio recordings. Yep, so you've got a sixth. So that concerns me straight away. Mm. And then 
they only did autopsies on 20 animals. Yeah. Now, they've only picked 20 to assess the severity of the wounds and how lethal they were. Yep. So 20 out of realistically 611. Uh, hmm. Well, you're only looking at, so, you know, of 600, 10% is going to be 60, isn't it? So Yeah, exactly. So you're looking at 3.5%? Roughly 3 or 4% of the animal shot. Now, I don't know about yourself, but that's not a huge that's not a huge percentage. And you think about your personal results as a hunter when shooting deer, you think about how many shots you've had how many animals you might have taken down. The variances on things that happen shot placement, even just how projectiles perform in bits and pieces. So to only look at 3 or 4% of a controlled situation, yeah, probably on the low side, I would think. <laughs> so I, uh, I can't help you there because I still haven't got my first deer on the deck yet. So, But uh, I know how many you shoot, so I'll, I'll refer back to you on that one. <laughs> no, yeah. But, mate, you're right. Like we're talking 3% is ridiculous. And then actually if you look at that and break that down a bit further and go, well, they looked at reviewing 104 and then still 20 of those. That's very minimal in this whole aspect. I think so. We then move on to it talking about there was 383 shotgun rounds used on the 104 deer. So, again, then I'm going, okay, well, they're using 3.8 essentially rounds yep. for these deer. Um, that's only the 104, not the 600. So that's something to be mindful of. But what's a bit concerning for me is that, out of those 104, they've used 3.8 shotgun rounds, but they still needed 10 rifle rounds. The shots had not done their job. Mm. So 10% had not done their job, I'm guessing, because it's 10 rifle rounds, so we could say 10 animals. Again, Put your, your, um, your three or four shotgun SGs into an animal and it still had to be finished off with a centerfire. Correct, and that's 10%, but that's only on the 104 that were looked at. So we don't know with the 600, was there any more? Didn't really, I couldn't find any of that no. evidence or documentation in And that's if it's only program. one centerfire shot per animal, it might have been different. But, you know, I immediately fear for the welfare concerns of those, those 10 deer. Yeah. Yes. You've been riddled with three or four SGs and then you've had to be coming finished off with a centerfire. Like, what a way yeah. to go out. Yeah. I... Makes your bloody blood boil. Oh, look, for me, I'm just sitting there going, I'm oh, not a big fan of that. Now, that's all, all that information's on page five if anyone wants to have a, have a look at that. So then I want to touch on something else because as we go through this, we're on page six now and we're talking about why aerial culling is effective. And this is one I hear all the time from anyone that is sort of anti-hunting or doesn't want to provide an opportunity for hunters. And it's generally always goes to inaccessible landscapes. Now, it's funny because as we scroll down and we get further down the document, they have images of the helicopter where people were positioned. And when you get down to page 10, there's one there that shows the primary shooter behind the pilot, secondary shooter to his left, and the thermographer. And, Jake, you can see it. Uh, yeah. Does that look like an inaccessible area to you, mate? Like, Looks like we're out in a footy field, to be honest. Oh, it's a pretty nice footy field. Too. Yeah. <laughs> a bit hilly. Hundreds of metres away, you can see small patches of what I, you might say is Mallee or, or Managum or something like that. But, yeah, all, all green pasture underneath the helicopter. 
it does make you wonder when they talk about inaccessible land, whether it's, you know, are we talking about extremely dense scrub or are they referring to inaccessible scrub as inaccessible areas is where hunters are not permitted or allowed or the general public aren't? Is that because, you know, inaccessible, well, you know, that could be one of the parks down here, Fairview Conservation Park or um, Gum Lagoon or something like that, which, hey, it's more than accessible by a hunter to hunt deer on if we were able to obtain that permission, but we can't at the moment. So it's interesting, I reckon, sometimes those, the words might mean something more than just simply getting someone there. It might be permission to be there too, possibly. So, yeah, look, I agree. <laughs> just looking at the document and, and the way it's set up and what they're talking about, I sort of sit here and go, well, looking at the picture, figure three, which is what they've used as the reference point mm. of where you know where people were positioned there is absolutely no reason a hunter could not be there and effectively from a, a further distance away because we haven't touched on it yet but the helicopter has to be under 30 meters from the deer mm. now that brings up so many issues from my you know, my thoughts in regards to animal welfare, what do you think about that? Yeah, to, ha to have a helicopter roaring over your head between, I think they're saying the effective range is 10 to 30 metres and then to be absolutely riddling you sh with shots is just um, the amount of stress that would have to be putting on the deer is just extreme and that's something that, is certainly not being considered or portrayed in this document whatsoever. It's it's all about the inefficiencies, uh, the efficiencies of the program. You know, if we wanted to create a a document proving the inefficiencies of the shotgun, I think we there's so much more than the actual efficiency of it. You look, yeah, you, you scroll through the document and look at some of the the field shot animals that they've got here that are just riddled with with shotgun bullets. It's just yeah. Makes your blood boil. Okay, so let's let's talk about that before. Actually, so there's so much to unpack here yeah. and talk about the animal welfare side. There is no way that you can tell me that a deer, which is a flighty animal, is going to be not stressed by having a helicopter and a large helicopter because they actually say in this they had to use a larger helicopter because they had so many people in there. That has to be stressful on the animal. And being chased with a shotgun, loud shotgun getting rung out at the animal from 10 to 30 metres away while they're scattering because they are in a, a group. Mm. The word welfare does not come to mind no. when you describe it like that. And that's coming from their own document here. Like I'm not making this up. And as I said, I'll put a link in the show notes. Anyone can jump on here, but you can just see. Figure yeah. seven shows that, you know, there's – one deer here with eight pellets in it and it, it's sort of been claimed as a victory because it, it penetrated the thorax and and uh, I think it even hit the the heart as well but I mean geez that's that's not cool no it's it's concerning it's just you it's just made me think of something like I've got a little drone um, which I've played around with a little bit trying to get uh, deer footage and whatnot and I've sort of found even in elevation above the animals, if you are lucky enough to find deer with it, which I think is hard enough, 
But if you do, most deer, once you get under about oh, 70 or 80 metres in elevation above them, will spot the drone and spook and want to run away from it. So you imagine you're increasing, uh, decreasing that distance to 10 or 30 metres, how hard the deer are going to want to run away from that. And this is a tiny little drone, not one of these huge helicopters. Yeah, just blows me away that they'd have to have some serious pace on and then, you know, that starts to raise concerns about accuracy and shot placement and everything else with such a fast-moving target. It's, yeah, it's a worry. Okay, and there's more. So we talked about that, you know, that that it needed to be that 10 to 30 metres. Now, Mm. on page, I believe it's 21, yeah, 21, just above table four, they're talking about the efficiency of different aerial culling programs, which I found really interesting because it talks about the differences between and – basically says that the least efficient was a single shooter armed with a rifle, so the 308, and they could only sort of knock over 8 to 10 deer per hour. It then suggests that when they add thermal equipment, that improved the efficiency for single shooters to 12 deer an mm. hour. But by using two shooters, thermal equipment, a combination of firearms, which was the shotgun and the 308, it became the most efficient by 23 deer an hour. They're not level playing fields. That's like saying, oh, I'm going to run 100 metres, but I'm going to get you to only run on one leg and I'm also going to you know, get a 10-metre start as well. Like, come on. If you're going to compare and do a, a proper comparison, then make it as... Oh, it's got to be apples with apples, doesn't it? it yes, it's got to be close at least. If you've got 12 deer per hour with the centerfire and the thermal with one shooter, you put two shooters in with two 308 centerfires with thermals, if it's just if it's going to work out to be near double, that's 24. So wouldn't that prove to be more efficient possibly? Common maths would say yes and... Wouldn't it? But we haven't even talked about cost yet. We'll get to that. But where, yeah. you know, again, this is just there's so many parts of this document that are just jumping out at me, saying, "Hmm, this needs to be questioned a little bit more." I don't know who's just grabbed this and ran it. Yeah, the whole thing seems to be, which you know, a lot of things need to be treated like a business, but you've got a heartbeat involved that can be a little bit different. It's not purely just on the mathematics on what's going to get you results. It, the other stuff needs to be considered, whereas that seems to be pushed aside just to achieve a goal, if you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I do. And look, for me, there is some concern here as well because it's talking about the, the findings are only relevant to the aerial culling programs with similar deer densities, canopy cover and terrain. So straight away, that's a bit of a caveat saying eh, it really doesn't, cover everything or close to everything only in this little patch and of the limestone coast region that we were doing these i guess you know culls and you can't really use this anywhere else oh and the deer densities is a wildly changing variable it's like going out hunting one morning you might hunt the same spot you see one deer the next time you go out there you might see 10 deer the day that they've gone over with the the shotgun and the centerfire in there might have been the day that you, as a hunter, saw one of the ten deer and vice versa, you know. So there's so many variables here that would change the results dramatically. 
would have they focused this the the trial or this uh, the program that they've they've worked on here on a spot where they knew they were going to get good results? Who knows? Was it shot? But was it a uh, parkland or farmland that they have shot before, or haven't shot before? There's just so many variables that c- could help them create the results they want to portray. Well, on top of that, so table four, where they've actually ranked what was the most efficient to the least efficient, and we have said what the the second shooter with shotgun and thermal equipment was the most efficient, and then one shooter rifle only. Now, I have some also. I also have some concerns with ranking them and putting them together because we know it's not apples with apples, but it goes into that a little bit further. And there is a massive discrepancy in flight hours that they're talking about here. So it's interesting that they've used one part as unpublished data from the limestone coast from 2009 all the way through to 2018, which is one shooter, rifle only, thermal binoculars may be used 947 flight hours, but we're comparing mm. that to the one that's the most efficient, which was having a second shooter with shotgun and thermal equipment. So straight away, they're not apples for apples. Uh, 26.3 flight hours. Now, that <laughs> that's not even close. We're not even talking 5% of the same flight hours, but we're touting this super successful strategy with 26 hours as opposed to the 947. Now, they do yeah. also have some other ones there, like they, which I don't even understand why it's, why it's there, but they've got another one from 2019, and that was one shooter and rifle only. That had 2.6 flight hours. Like, how are we even got a document here and a table that's saying 2.6 hours, we're going to use that, versus 947, we're going to use that and we're going to just average it all out and, yeah, people might not look at it. I'm guessing that's what they're thinking here is. Well, there would have been new, numerous shoots in 2019 in the Limestone Coast. So, yeah, is that one just selected at random or is it one that helps generate the figures that you're trying to, well, you know, achieve That's or a very good question because they're very, very opposite, opposite ends of the spectrum here and – what we're talking about, even in the own document here, when they were comparing how many deer were around, they're saying that, you know, now there's going to be close to 2 million, et cetera, et cetera. Well, if there's more deer around, there's more to shoot faster. So that's going to skew the numbers as yeah. well. So why are we using data from 2009 compared to 2022 when we apparently have this big deer plague going on? Mm. Yes, well, I think we know the answer to that question. Mate, 100%. So there's <laughs> – before we get out of this document, I, uh, there's two things here. One is they've stated, well, we did not present the cost data for this or other programs. Well, I, I know why they didn't because let's talk about the number of people. One shooter compared to uh, two shooters, uh, that's obviously double the cost. Uh, then we're talking about yep. shotgun – versus a centerfire rifle and we're talking 3.8 shots compared to, you know, you'd, you'd, you'd hope contract or professional shooters with a centerfire 308 could take a fellow out in one shot, you know, mm. I'd, I'd really hope so to be honest. So there's yep. a big cost difference here and we're not mentioning that. I, I think that should be part of this, 100% part of this document saying, well, you know, when we talk about the welfare outcomes, when we talk about the cost, when we talk about all these different things, let's let's call mm. a spade a spade. Let's not 
put in information that's going to paint our objective because right through this looking at it, it it's coming back to their predictions at the start and how can they just justify the prediction in my opinion it's meant to be about proving the effect the effect i think is is it effectiveness or does it say efficiency it in says there? efficiency up the top efficiency is not purely number like number of animals related we're talking about the cost as well so uh in efficiency and welfare outcomes at the top of the document so efficiency in my eyes is a combination of you know obviously the the result uh, which here they're trying to achieve the most shot deer as possible in the, the shortest amount of time but it needs to be compared with cost because the most effective effective way might not be the most efficient and in that conclusion it's it's sort of saying well you know we're just leaving that part out. It, I'd heard on the country hour on the ABC that the this trial program was costing north of seventy five thousand dollars a day to the taxpayer. Yeah, that doesn't shock me. Like that is scary. Seventy five thousand dollars a day, and yet you walk around. That just can be in Mount Gambier. There's homeless people. There's people that can't get into hospital for you know, treatments or surgeries or bits and pieces. This money could be – there's people that can't feed their families and we're wasting $75,000 a day on shooting a few deer that are then – they're rubbing it in our nose even further by leaving them on the ground, not utilising them and f- feeding the pests. And we haven't even touched on the amount of lead the shotgun's going to throw into the past year. Well, we'll get onto that in a moment because I want to talk about just one of their – one of the dot points we spoke about at the top when it's talking about increasing the likelihood of multiple projectiles leading to more fatal injuries of vital organs. Again, I come back to, I'm not sure what's, what it's like down there in South Australia, but you know, most of our, I guess, contract shooters are generally going for headshots up here. Interesting that the wording of that is talking about putting multiple projectiles in like it's a positive thing because that yeah. then links exactly to what you just mentioned about the lead going into the animals because I see two issues yeah. with what you just said. I, was, I agree with you, but I've got two issues there is that A, by leaving them on the ground to rot, that's going to then increase the numbers of feral pests that they want to get rid of. Okay, so there's one. Secondly, yeah. what a waste of meat, but that meat then can't be used because of the lead in the animal from multiple pellets. Exactly. And let's talk about lead yep. because I know it was spoken about on, um, I don't know if you caught the podcast, Meat Eater, obviously you know what Meat Eater is, but they did one there, I think it was in relation to duck hunting and using lead pellets and they did, a, they had a biologist maybe on and they were doing studies on lead on the bottom of the um, the rivers or streams or, or wherever were being shot, and they said that it had increased yep. heaps and it was to dangerous levels. Now, yep. let's talk about that because we know how bad lead is in the sense that I know my local range shuts down every, uh, you know, once a month to get rid of lead because it can't be there yeah, and there's well. a specific number that they must hit. And yet we're yep. looking at a trial here that we're just going to to throw lead out willy-nilly as much as possible, 3.8 yep. shots per deer. 
and that's going off their yep. stats only of the hundred, so there could be more. Well, that can't be great yeah. for the environment. How many farmers want lead out there in their properties? Yeah, and we're talking serious amounts because you know the the projected number of deer in the southeast they're saying is forty thousand, which I I don't agree with that number. I think that's that's too much as well, and that's a whole other conversation. But forty thousand deer, they keep saying, is this target that they're trying to achieve. A good friend of mine's played around with these numbers a little bit and it's the numbers they've provided so it's not us speculating this is from these numbers from this sort of document is that 40,000 deer at your average shot with the white bullets they're using the amount of lead that we're talking this is five ton of lead that they're going to spray into the landscape it's not not little bits and pieces here so you're talking a huge amount of lead the the flow on effects is, have they? Has that even been considered? I, d- I don't think so. You know, left in the animals, yes. The meat-eating birds, wedge-tail eagles. There's some. I know some shorebirds that um, eat meat. Are they going to be affected? Is it going to affect their behaviour, their breeding? Is it going to soak into farming soil that then can possibly go into crops, into feed, into animals? It's yeah, a serious issue that I don't think's been considered by the government. Or it's been deliberately not looked at. And this is one of my concerns exactly. too because, uh, you know, I yeah. don't want to sound like a broken record, but I've spoken about the National Feral Deer Action Plan in depth. And my concern is yeah. the poison side of it because just dump, you know, I really do feel that they want to dump 1080 out of helicopters because it's efficient, <laughs> using that word again, it's cost effective and oh, that yeah, is the reason, yeah. yes, the plan doesn't say that they're going to use poison, but don't kid yourself when they're saying we want to get poisons approved. Well, if they're getting approved, they're not doing that just to have sit on the shelf and go, oh, we've got it there if we ever need it. They're going to use it. That's pretty clear. Yeah. There's been trials done in South Australia with, oh, I can't remember the name of the unit. It was basically... Uh, they developed it's like a fenced area where there was a box where the the animal had to come in and tread on a foot. Oh, yes, it's called an aggregator. Aggregator, that's the one. You know, there's been trials of that done. It's it, it's it's being worked on. Yeah, very worrying. Well, it, it's more concerning because I unpacked the um, 1080 compared, and so WA on their website when they have the 1080 poisons on there, it shows our native species and the tolerance to 1080. And a lot of people probably don't understand what 1080 is, but it's derived from a plant in Western Australia or a few different ones, but it's 98% from the Western side of Australia. Now, what the data from their own website, the WA site, is that as you come over to the Eastern side of Australia, the tolerance of native species to 1080 is drastically reduced and they stopped at South Australia once you saw things like the quolls and different things went through the roof and, you know, they needed a lot less of it to actually kill them. They didn't get all the way over here to New South Wales, which I'm really disappointed because I'm going to say the trend really did show that the further away from WA, the higher the intolerance of our native animals you know, this is, again, something that's really concerning. And I talk about the yeah. Centre for Invasive Species being the one that are driving this and pushing this. Guess what? Out of the references, so if you scroll all the way down to page 24 and have a look at the references for this document, the most references there 
belong to the Center for Invasive Species Solutions with six different references compared to anybody else there. That, to me, is you have a predetermined person who we know their stance on on deer and what they want to do with deer and they're the one of the big contributors to this document and they've got someone on the group that's looking at this come on there is definite bias there before we've even started really going through and unpacking that that's that's ridiculous in my opinion looks like it doesn't it yep now look i you know there's so many things here because we haven't even really talked about the distance that much in the difference between the shotgun and using a 308. And again, we come back to the aerial culling being the preferred means because shooters can't get in there. The evidence or the the video the image that we looked at there had four deer on it in this vast open landscape. There's this constant discussion about not having suppressors. And, you know, we've got all these different tools at our disposal that I really do feel that someone could have got all those four deer in that image without it being the need for a shotgun and to be in a helicopter 10, 20, 30 metres above the poor animals. Yeah. I mean, this doesn't seem to be in the discussion and it's something that has really been a bugbear for me and, and frustrates me a lot in that we have so many other opportunities out there and you mentioned before as a revenue source for um for farmers i i've consistently yep. said over on this side of the world that we talk about national parks are shut down to a uh, shutdown and and that's something that yep. you know it does impact the data because a lot of people say you know they throw out the recreational in front of hunter and say that we are not doing a good enough job but we're also not allowed to access a lot of the areas as well. So again, there, you know, it's like we've got one hand tied behind our back and we're being asked to do, or we're being, that data is being used against us, which I have issues with firstly. There hasn't been good communication between the government and the hunters, which I think is a major contributor and probably some sort of management of the hunters as a collective as well. Because, you know, obviously each individual is going to have totally different goals that they're trying to achieve when they go on a hunt. Someone might want to try and shoot every animal they can. They want as much meat to provide for their family, their friends and everything else. Someone might simply be trophy hunting on a day and, you know, they're only going to settle for a, a specific sort of animal. So, you know, there needs to be some sort of management of the hunters as a collective to ensure that, the correct numbers are being taken to make sure it is manageable and sustainable. And, you know, you look at – it's similar to the tar the tar issue in New Zealand when, you know, they were concerned about raising numbers uh, and they are talking about helicopter culling and bits and pieces. But then there was conversations with the gov- from the government with hunters to increase offtake, and, you know, that's been achieved. So it, it's the sort of thing – those conversations haven't been had in Australia – and if they had, well, this whole situation could be totally different. So I think the yeah, management of us as a group is is important somehow. I, I couldn't agree more. I've said it before. I think there needs mm. to be something there that is beneficial for all. 
And mm. I don't think hunters can sort of run it, but I don't think what we're seeing from our government sort of departments in what job they're doing, they could run it either in a sense. But I, you know, I do no. love the North American conservation model and I'm very vocal about that with the tag system and the money going back into yeah. things. And, I, and I've said it here, I, mate, I'd love the opportunity to have a, a constant stream of venison coming in for the family. And I have no issue yep. with, you know, having to go to a local national park because there's so many around near me within sort of, you know, 30, 40 minutes and, and sit in a blind yep. off a bait pole and, and shoot a couple of deer as they come in. I'd pay money for that mm. because that's good meat. It's putting money back into conservation. It's taking down numbers. Now, do I want that happening all over the place? No, I still want fair chase. I still want to be able to go out and hunt as well in state forests and things like that. But, you know, yeah. I think we, we get so, I guess, tunnel vision and people don't look at the multiple avenues of what we can do to assist in reducing numbers, to keep it viable yep. for hunters to put more money back into the economy, into the pockets of farmers. You know, there's, there's yeah. so many elements that could be accessed. And I don't think it's a one-size-fits-all approach. I think it could be such a multifaceted, targeted sort yeah. of, you know, different aspects of it. I, I think that's really the way to go. But I don't hear or see your – I don't really feel that that's ever going to happen here because we're sort of demonising. No. And, you know, I was really concerned when Danny Ryan – who was talking about the duck hunting and they're in there throwing feral, um, you know, to try and I guess push the the change of a game animal over there in Victoria. And what that concerns yeah. me too, because once that happens, I think that's, you know, game over. You never go back. No, that's right. But just thinking my mind's just, you know, the, the bounty system for even foxes and wild dogs is another thing that's worked. In, in Australia in different states. You could do a similar with deer. That would be an incentive for more offtake. It's something that probably hasn't been considered. The other ones is being able to knock over deer and, and take them to a butcher. Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's another element there. I'm still astounded and it, it really does baffle me is where crossbows come into the equation. They're quiet. They do the job. They're efficient and accurate. You know, if we're talking about there's this big issue with suppressors and noise and all these different things, but then that's off the table. And I don't know, it just, for me, there's so many elements that we could do or we could even look at and we're just not even having yeah. those conversations at the moment. Well, not that I'm aware of anyway, but I really don't think they're coming. By, by hunting in South Australia, the push and basically the achievement of that is, is coming, sadly. Um, the way it's looking so you know those other alternatives that might have been extremely efficient in some places in particular or certain situations aren't going to be able to be a tool in the toolbox for the for the South Australian hunter soon sadly. That is a big concern I've talked about that going just and it's setting a precedent as well that's mm. that's what worries yep. me is once that precedent is set it's really easy yep. for our politicians to go, oh, that worked well over here. I'm going to grab it and I'm going to run with it. And, and that was my thing with the feral deer plan is that there's a lot of money and resources and gone into that to create this document that's real easy for governments to grab a hold of and use. And, yep. you know, look, as much as I dislike it, I've got to give credit to the Centre for Invasive Species because they've got their 
finger in so many pies. And you can see that here with this document. Like they're just popping up all over the place. And it is a very biased viewpoint where they don't take in the the financial, the economic benefits to to deer on the landscape and hunting. And I think you were right what you said before. We're never going to wipe them out. I think we really need to change. The perspective needs to be changed in how we utilize and look at deer as a resource because Mm. they're never getting wiped out. Look at the cane toad. Look at brumbies. Like You name it. It's this. Boxes, there's, there's, yeah, there's so many examples you you can look at in introduced animals that, uh, you know, it's just been proven time and time again. One that is really good to, to use as a comparison is goats. You wind the clock back when they were both basically worthless, a huge push to try and remove goats from the landscape because the, their, uh, their worth has changed. It's a totally different story. And who's to say in another 10, 20 years that the value of, of, of an animal, for deer in particular in this example, changes? It just, the whole perspective would change. And that's just the four, yeah, the big picture, the forethought down the track, I don't know if it's been considered. Like, yeah, with the goats, you know, they're worth two or 300 a head now for live export. They're being round up and put on a boat. See you later. Farmers love them. If you wanted to go up and shoot a goat off a farmer's property, he'd tell you to piss off these days. Wasn't the case a few decades ago. So I, I think that's slightly changed up in up here in New South Wales. I know they they've dropped down, so there's a lot of farmers actually allowing people back in. But you're right. For a time there, it was just we're going to muster them up and and we're making a fortune off them, and that has been a, a big money maker for farmers. And good on them. I can understand why they would do that to supplement their income as opposed to letting hunters on to to take one or two. Interesting exactly. with the goat side of things, though, I have been watching a, a little bit on, um, I think it was Instagram, but they took in a herd of goats into an area that was just sort of really, I guess, prone for bushfire or wildfire because I think it was in the States, and they let these goats just do their thing, and it ba- they basically cleaned the area. Now, we are susceptible oh, to bushfires at the moment. They are predicting it's going to be a really bad season because there's a, a lack of a window for us to to do back burning and prescriptive burns and yep. things like that. I don't understand why we're sort of not looking at it going, okay, well, is there the possibility that we use goats to clean up areas for that minimizing the the you know amount of fuel load that's on the ground? I just think we demonize or we get this thought in our head going that's not a an animal that should be here if that animal shouldn't be here we've got to try and get rid of it we can't see it to have any benefit even if it does and then on the other occasion though I I look at the the Brumbies down in the Kosciuszko National Park and the Snowy Mountains and made everyone loves them and it's really hard for them to do anything about it because we have this affinity with the man from Snowy River it's yeah. really interesting sometimes when you when you try and understand the logic behind some of these things, it just doesn't make sense. No, that's right. There's yeah, definitely pros and cons for every situation that you know sometimes others are looked looked into more than the alternative. But yeah, it's it's this whole thing just makes your mind baffled, doesn't it, mate? It does, and I think uh, that's probably a good 
way to wrap it up is that I'm just astounded like you are that we're seeing what's going on there in South Australia and and the way it's looking, whether it be the bow hunting ban, whether it be, you know, culling from helicopters with shotguns. I, I, yeah, there's just so many things. I just, I scratch my head and go, what is going on? Who are making these decisions? And wow, I don't know what else to say. So yeah, it's certainly interesting times and probably hard times for for hunters and and especially you know our deer but um we've probably got to try and stay as positive as we can and as you said get our voices heard by talking with your local members and you know sharing the the appropriate material and just basically keep working at it don't give up mate i love what you're doing down there and stepping up to advocate we need more of it uh as i called out for people before if anyone down there in south australia Get them to get in touch with the local member and, you know, start making their voices heard because we really need to start doing that. So please take some action, whether it be sharing Jake's footage that went on to the ABC. We'll put the links in the show notes and I'll try and put it up in uh, on the socials as well. Please get it out there as much as possible. I don't care if you don't share the podcast. I just want to see that footage go out there and try and start getting into you know, start being on the front foot for some of these things. So um, if you haven't already, mate. It all helps raise awareness. Exactly That's right. All um, and safety concerns is that is, you know, it's regardless of how this all works, we don't want hunters or the general public to be unsafe. 100%. So, 100%. Couldn't yeah. agree more. It's no deer's worth your life. I've said that many a time. No, 100%. Mate, really appreciate you giving up your time and coming on tonight. I know you're a busy man with everything's going on down there. Give the opportunity. I'm not sure if you've been on any other podcasts, and if you haven't, a shout out to all those blokes out there because they probably got listeners that I don't have. Um, you know, get him on and, and start making this aware and as many people and hunters that we can, that would be ideal. I appreciate it, mate. Thank you. It's been good fun. Cheers. All right, guys. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. If you have a topic, guest, question or any gear that you want to hear about on the podcast, shoot us an email, australianhuntingandbeyond at gmail.com. Alternatively, Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. All the links are in the show notes. If you haven't already, make sure you give us a review and subscribe to our podcast on whatever platform you're listening on. Thanks for joining us, and we'll catch you next time.